I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the 2019 Vision Series, a time to regroup and prepare for the coming year, remembering where we're headed and where we've been. I'm uh, going to go out on a limb and assume that most of the good folks in the room this evening have not heard tell of this gentleman. Um, he said, Why are we laughing already? You don't know about him? He's called Stephen K. Hayes. As a young man, Mr. Hayes was an avid student of the martial arts, as is probably evidenced by this photograph, and in a pre-internet age, he managed to track down a man who claimed to be the last living grandmaster of ninjutsu. How he did this, I can't begin to imagine. While uh, I'm watching a movie or reading a novel and some character is attempting to unravel some mystery, I realize entire genres are built on this, but I just feel so exhausted every time a mystery is even introduced. It's not satisfying to me. Uh, It's like watching someone vacuum. You know that all this stuff has to happen and then it's going to be over. I can't even find my own glasses on most days, so I have to ask Abby where I put them and she'll tell me. So uh, in a movie, if like Batman can't find the Joker or some such villain and he sets to his detective work and they'll say things like, he could be anywhere in Gotham. And I'm like, in Gotham? It's hopeless, man. That's a city. If he was in your house, maybe. It's a big old estate. But somehow, I digress, somehow Stephen K. Hayes in the late 70s managed to learn of and then track down a man called Masaaki Hatsumi to bring before him one burning question, will you teach me? Hatsumi had at this point never taken an American student, but he agreed to accept Hayes, who then moved to Japan, lived with the guy, and trained every single day. Next thing he knew, he was sneaking around at night with his sensei and his other students, learning to see and smell in the dark and scramble up trees and flat surfaces and sparring in the woods, all kinds of seriously cool stuff. And in the, uh, the early 80s, Hayes published a slew of books about his experiences, and I read all of them. Now, <laughs> this one in particular was quite good. Uh, now, to be clear, I'm a pacifist. I don't want to, nor would I, fight anyone. I'm not sure I would be any good at it, even if I had training. With or without the ninja training, I'm okay. I'm okay. But I cannot shake a certain curiosity woven into the fabric of of maybe human DNA, which is ninja stuff is cool. (laughs) So sometimes uh, reading these books, I'd happen upon information that would kind of spoil it. Uh, Stuff like, oh, you know, ninjas may not have looked exactly like this, and maybe they didn't do backflips from the bottoms of ropes after repelling down castle walls all the time. Or maybe they didn't always wear those cool masks. And I would slam the book shut. I, don't, I won't entertain this nonsense. I have an idea that I would like to keep in my mind. Now, I should mention at this point that my reading about Stephen K. Hayes was some 16 years ago. So, so taken by his material was I at age 20 that together <laughs> with, with two other friends, Patrick was one of them, we pooled all our money and we wrote in for a, a mail-order Ninja DVD training curriculum. <laughs> Apparently, they still sell it. I went to try to find like an old ad. This is the current ad. Now it's available on Blu-ray. You see that? Um, So (laughs) those closest to us thought us crazy, but we didn't care. We read the manual. 
We, we trained with the DVD five times a week. We worked out six days a week. We ran almost every single night. I gave up sweet tea. It was big for me. Ninja can't have too much sugar, apparently. Now, we did this for a year without compromise. People thought us foolish. We ignored them. They'll be sorry, we said to each other. <laughs> Why they would be sorry, I could not say. Where were we going with this? I had no idea. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that we did not advance beyond the first belt, but not because our enthusiasm fizzled. It was because the first belt cost more money, <laughs> and we'd spent all we had on these DVDs at the time. Years later, I found my special order handmade. It's called a Shinobi Shizoku. It's a, the outfit. It looks exactly like you think. And I was like, oh, I'm going to wear this to a costume party as an adult, as a grown-up, because it's Halloween time. And when I got there, everyone just kept saying, are you ISIS? So I was like, no, nah, I think it's time to part with the outfit and everything. <laughs> the whole thing is over. But I will say that uh, we were really shaped by all that work. People began to ask things like, have you guys been working out? And to which we replied, why, yes, we have, and more. Um, the stretches got easier, the, the stances and rolls and little kicks more efficient and powerful, and everyone laughed, not without reason, but inauthentic though the training may have been, all of that work that we were doing, it was really a lot of time and effort, was doing something to us. Now, at that same time, I was also the student of another teacher. Again, one I had not met face-to-face, -face, one whose teachings I had by way of writings and interpretations of people with more expertise than I had. This other teacher, you may have guessed, was called Jesus of Nazareth, but the training was decidedly less demanding for me. Here's what I did. Most mornings, I will say, most mornings, I read my Bible for a little while, um, and I also prayed for and about stuff. Uh, I was traveling full-time, playing music during this era, so when I was home or when I wasn't driving on a Sunday morning, I'd usually go to a church, sing songs, listen to a sermon. I listen to podcasts of sermons all the time, a lot of time driving, save so a lot of time for those. And this, too, was impacting me. It was affecting me. But one of them was changing me in perceptible ways, ways that shaped the decisions I made every day, and it cost me something, actual money and other things. And I remember thinking about Stephen K. Hayes, the way that he sought out a teacher, presented himself as an eager vessel, like, I've found you, I've come all this way, will you teach me? I was not about to move to Japan. I didn't know how to do that. Before Hayes... No one else had done what he did, but I doubt no one else had ever considered it. A gesture like that is something else entirely. He didn't even know if it would work. And it's interesting to me now when I think that Jesus was the same kind of magnetic teacher to whom people were drawn. In fact, of the 90 or so instances in which Jesus is addressed throughout the Gospels, he is called teacher in upwards of 60 of them. And maybe that hits you as unspectacular, but consider this. In American church circles, there's often a tendency to emphasize either Jesus the teacher or Jesus the Son of God. Now, if you grew in, grew up in or around like a conservative wing of the church, chances are you heard a lot about Jesus the Son of God and maybe little to nothing about Jesus the teacher. And as a result, some of us carry in our mind an image of a mystic, divine, messianic, powerful figure who is also not really a brilliant teacher. But throughout all four Gospels, the idea of following Jesus at all is understood as a relationship between a teacher and a student. So let me show you. Let's read from Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. It's a familiar story. 
As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now that term, uh, fisher and fishers of men, was a first century idiom to describe a great teacher, actually, someone who catches the hearts and the imaginations of those whom they teach. So Jesus was essentially saying, follow me and I will make you like me. I will turn you into great teachers. Turn the page, look at another story, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, a a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Turn to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, listen to this, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now look at this. Why does Jesus appoint 12 apprentices? Well, the answer in this particular story is that they might be with him. And then he sends them out to preach and to drive out demons. If you know the story, what had Jesus been doing with his time prior to the appointment of these 12? He had been preaching and driving out demons. So the plan is appoint these apprentices to be with him. And that proximity will shape them to become like him, fishers of men. And then they will do what he is doing. In story after story after story, the call of Jesus is not, believe that I'm the Son of God, that I died on the cross for your sins, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. In the biographies of Jesus' life, the invitation is, come, follow me, or put another way, come be my disciple. In Hebrew, the word that we translate as disciple is talmudim. In Greek, it's mathetes. Now, disciple is a totally fine translation, but we don't really use that word as much these days. It's usually only in the context of Bible, New Testament stuff. You could translate that same exact word as follower or student, pupil, but the English word that we think best captures the idea behind mathetes is apprentice. To become a Talmudim, a mathetes of a rabbi, meant becoming an apprentice to a master, to live within your teacher's shadow for the most important years of your life. Now, full disclosure, discipleship wasn't invented by Jesus, nor was Jesus the first rabbi to have disciples, nor was he the last. Rabbi Hillel, years prior to Jesus, had 70 disciples himself. Rabbi Rabbi Akiva, who was a famous teacher several decades after Jesus, had five disciples, but thousands more were said to follow him. Discipleship isn't even a concept first developed by rabbis at all. It came from Greece. Um, Plato was a disciple of Socrates, and Zelechus was a disciple of Pythagoras, and so, so on. Any Greek names? Greek names. The concept spread across the ancient Mediterranean and became part and parcel of life in the ancient world and in the first century. And here is how it worked. Now, stay with me. We're going somewhere with this. In the first century, discipleship was the apex of the Jewish education system, which was itself built from three distinct tiers. The first was called Beit Sefer in Hebrew, which is a a term that means house of the book. 
It was something like a grade school in which the book in question was the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. Now, students of Beit Sefer would learn ordinary grade school things, the things that we still learn, reading, writing, arithmetic. My oldest kid uh, is, just started kindergarten a little while ago, and I uh, must confess some apprehension that I have with the value of the whole thing thus far. Every day, this guy comes home with just a black hole in his memory. He used to be able to recount the events of his day with some accuracy, but now it's like, hey, Beck, how was school? He's like, I don't remember. That's what he says. So I don't really remember. I was like, you just walked out the door. Um, so I'm going to ask him specific questions. Uh, what did you do? I can't really remember. You were there for seven hours. You can't remember? So I'm trying to populate his memory for him. Did you read books, maybe? That seems like something you might do in kindergarten, play with friends, sing a song, perhaps. I don't know. But he's already made his peace with the passing of time. He's like, you know what? I'm home now. So there is only now, Father. <laughs> Not so for kids in Beit Sefer, as they would, get this, commit the Torah to memory. Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorize. The vast majority of Jewish students completed Beit Sefer and thus concluded their education entirely around age 12 or so. Hebrew girls would be married and begin families by age 13 or 14. And the boy, I know, it's weird. And the boys would begin apprenticing their fathers in whatever was the family business. But the very best students would continue on to the second level of education known as Beit Talmud, or the House of Learning. This school was an extension of the local synagogue for men only, ages 12 to 14. And here, these young men would learn from a full-time teacher, and they would memorize most of, if not the entire Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi, steel trap. When the House of Learning was completed, so is your education. You're done. But for the best of the very best, that one in a hundred beyond exceptional student, there was an opportunity to continue your learning by becoming a Talmudim or an apprentice of a rabbi. Though even for the elite student, this was not an easy spot to secure. The student in question would sit before their rabbi-to-be and said rabbi would grill them. How well do you know the Torah? What about the Talmud? How do you feel about Rabbi Hillel's take on the Nephilim? Do you agree? Do you disagree? I was actually interviewed by just a couple of people in an office with no air conditioning to be admitted to graduate studies in Bible and theology. And as I recall, they were basically like, do you have the money? And, and I was like, not really, but someone else will give it to me, and I'll give it to you. And they were like, in. You are in. <laughs> Admission for uh, a Talmudim was a tad more rigorous. And if the rabbi suspected that this new prospect might indeed have what it took, the intelligence, the acumen, the work ethic, the faithfulness, to one day become a rabbi themselves, then that rabbi would say something like, come, follow me, be my disciple. Now, the newly minted disciple has, in a moment, taken on three goals. The first is to just be with their rabbi. Remember that line in Mark, he appointed the twelve that they might be with him. Simply being with your teacher is the first part of the gig. Apprenticeship was a 24-7 thing. In fact, the apprentice would follow their rabbi all over Israel every single day, spending every waking and sleeping moment by their rabbi's side. You had breakfast together, you stopped for the same lunch, you sat together at dinner, you called it a night in tandem all day long, every single day, you and your rabbi. And there's a reason, I think, that the first thing we read after he appointed 12 is that they might be with him. To spend every moment of every day in the presence of Jesus is goal number one of apprenticeship. 
This, of course, begs the question, how does that work exactly? Because we're not Peter, or James, or John. We cannot physically follow Jesus as he walks around Palestine, to be sure. Um, so how can we be with Jesus at all? In a strange, paradoxical kind of twist, one of the biographies of Jesus ends with Jesus himself saying to his disciples, I am with you always to the very end. And he says this just before he leaves to go be with God the Father. And then later in Acts chapter 2, the story goes on. Just a few weeks after Jesus leaves the disciples, the Holy Spirit comes. And in the story, he's called the Spirit of Jesus. God's Spirit is how Jesus is with us and how we can be with him meaning the first, most primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is baseline for life in the kingdom of God. The New Testament describes the same idea with all sorts of language. Jesus calls it abiding in the vine. Paul calls it prayer without ceasing. Our Catholic brothers and sisters call it contemplation. The medieval mystic Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. Theologian Greg Boyd simply calls it remaining present. The first role of the apprentice was simply to be with their rabbi. The second role of the apprentice was to become like your rabbi. Jesus has this great quote about the way that a student is never above a teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. This is the heart and soul of apprenticeship. You will become like your teacher in the process. It seems like a given, but this grates against the modern kind of Western Instagram Diet Coke sensibility of you do you or hashtag do what makes you happy. In the culture of the modern Western world, personal autonomy is often our chief aspiration. Be true to yourself. If I can be frank, it's an expression I'm not fond of personally, the problem with the be true to yourself ethos is that a whole lot of yourself, if I may, sucks. <laughs> but in discipleship, the idea is to become like someone else. To be sure, you're still you, you will still have a personality and a wiring and a uniqueness. God made you that way for a reason. But it's all subsumed into the emulation of your rabbi. The apprentice would emulate their rabbi's every move. And not just that, they would actually emulate the way he spoke and the way he behaved and his habits. The disciple was to become like the teacher. Today, we often prioritize believing the right things over doing the right things. But to Jesus, an idea like that was totally unheard of. Learning the Bible is the easy part. Living the Bible is the true test of the apprentice. Doctrine is easy. We can figure that out. But learning to be a human being and have life to the fullest, that takes time and practice. And it starts with the student being with their rabbi so that they will, over time, become like their rabbi. And then, finally, in this order, do what their rabbi did. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. In other words, to do what he himself had been doing. This entire premise of discipleship is predicated on the notion that the apprentice will one day carry on their teacher's work in the world. 
would-be welders or burgeoning tattoo artists or ambitious karate students don't plan on completing their training only to thank their teacher and then say, you've given me a lot to think about. Now, if you'll excuse me, I think I'm going to do something else. The whole idea is for you to do it next. That's why you're there. Jesus' kingdom work could be parsed out into 10 categories. It involves... It involves... There they are. Oh, great. Sorry, Peter, I thought maybe I messed it up, which would be the more likely thing. It involves preaching the gospel or telling the story of Jesus in the Bible, teaching the way, actually teaching the methods of following Jesus. It involves healing the sick and casting out demons and peacemaking. It involves doing justice and eating and drinking with people far from God. Of course, it involves praying, it involves prophesying, and it involves standing up against religious and political hypocrisy, all things that Jesus did. If you've taken up with Jesus, found something in him to which you have been drawn, compelled, he has in mind for you to learn all that. Now, the three goals of a first-century disciple, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, are that simple and that basic and that far-reaching over a disciple's life. And we would argue that those goals haven't changed. This is what we mean when we mention those five words we say here at Van City quite a bit, practicing the way of Jesus. And though we are an imperfect, at times a stumbling family, we have set out to be with Jesus so that we can become like him over time and learn to do the kinds of things that he did. And that's something that we have to do together. Read the entire New Testament. Jesus did not take one apprentice. He took many. He had 12 apostles, but there were hundreds of other disciples. And all throughout the subsequent writings in the New Testament, you read letters written to churches or letters written to individuals who are at work within the family of the church. There is no personal pan discipleship. It is always and only carried out in the context of community. And yes, I'm afraid that means it will not be easy. One of my all-time favorite church planting stories is when I talked to a young South African couple who had planted a church and were, when I spoke to them, about a year or two into the process. I was, at the time, on the road to Van City, as it were, still a year or so before we actually launched. And so I asked this young woman, um, what's the worst part of the whole thing? So I'm a pessimist by nature, so I'm like, give me the bad news first and last, and she, she said confidently and without hesitation, no, oh, good question, hmm, you know, just right away she said, the worst part is people. She said, I love people, but people are the worst. The best and worst part of the whole deal is that we have to and get to do all of this together. Thus, to join Van City, we have not historically invited anyone to fill out membership paperwork, but we do think of ourselves, believe it or not, with, as a church with a kind of membership. And it's based on four premises. The first is really simple. Come to church on Sunday. Um, one church, we're not asking you to add us to a list of churches that you like. We'd rather you honestly just pick one church and go all in at that church. Whether it's us or somewhere else, pick one church. If it's us, great. Premise one, come to church. The second premise is join a Van City community. It's something we talk about all the time. The next basics class is going to be here on October 20th. That's how you learn about what our communities are, what they do, and how to get plugged into one. Show up faithfully to that community and participate in that community. You will walk with other people through actual 
practices, training in the way of Jesus, whether it's prayer or fasting or dealing with your past, you sit down with other disciples of Jesus all over the map in their discipleship, and you work through practices that we write and we provide and that we think through together, and then you give it a shot. So come to church on a Sunday, be in a community, and serve. Help make coffee on a Sunday evening or play in the band, or lead a kid's class downstairs, or help us clean up the huge mess every Sunday night. There are really appropriate avenues to serve for just about every skill set, and there are avenues to serve that accommodate just about every season of life and every kind of availability. Um, So serve, that's a big part of what it means to be part of Van City. And then finally, give. Not a tip when you remember, but a disciplined, recurring gift of generosity. In a healthy family, everyone pitches in, and this church, frankly, we say it all the time, will not continue without finances. This is how we understand what it means to be a part of Van City. If you want to call that membership, fine. It's what we're asking of anyone who wants to join Van City. Come to church on Sunday, be in a Van City community, serve and give. Now, don't look at this list and think, oh, geez, I'm missing something on that list, so I guess I'm not welcome here. Don't do that because, one, that's not what I said, so that's important. Um, But two, this is not like a rigid formula for measuring who is in and who is out. This is the invitation, and this is the commitment, frankly, that we are asking you to consider should you want to be a part of this thing called Van City. Churches, I realize, often seem like gems, something I was thinking about this week. I wouldn't know personally. Um, But I'm told, and from what I've seen on, you know, television, they seem like gems. As an aside to this story, my friend uh, Peter, is Peter in here? Or did he, where'd he go? What's that? Oh, (laughs) that's great. That's never happened before. That's the first. He's busy with something. As an aside, if you didn't hear, that's fine. We'll save his uh, embarrassment. Uh, My friend Peter, he mentioned in passing in my presence, he's like, I'm thinking about joining a new gym. One night, I says to myself, I says, maybe the gym is right for me. So I text Peter. I just want information at this point. All I said was, when and where are you thinking about uh, going to the gym? How much does it cost? Those were the three questions. To which he almost immediately replied with enthusiasm, heck yes, this is so exciting, and I quote, we're going to get shredded. (laughs) There there he is. (laughs) So... (laughs) I was like, whoa, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. For all you know, I'm collecting data. I could be writing a book about gems. You have no idea why I'm asking. Anyway, people treat churches like gems. It's not all bad. You want to know what it's like, what goes on in there, how weird the other people might be, and when they go, and all that kind of stuff. But for better or for worse, we do not think of or present practicing the way of Jesus as something that can be localized in a Sunday event or frankly, even within the confines of your Van City community. Following Jesus is a way of life. It's a way of thinking and understanding the world and the people in it and why things are the way they are and how they could be and where we fit into the story of life and the cosmos. Following Jesus is about the way that you talk and the way that you think and how you handle money and the way you approach relationships and parenting and art and sex and vocation. For many, and many an American rather, the term Christian simply means that you believe certain broad concepts about God, maybe you even go to church, and you attempt to be a semi-moral person. In my estimation, being a 
Christian often ends up being about Jesus following you. He follows you about your life. He offers help when you're in a pinch. He acts as a courier to send, you know, thoughts and prayers out to someone in need. He helps you feel better when you're down. He blesses you and so on. A disciple, on the other hand, follows Jesus. Now, I realize statistics are not metaphysical truth or anything, but I was reading a recent Gallup poll revealed that 76% of Americans claim to be Christians. Now, alternately, a number of independent surveys all put the number of Americans who are actually following Jesus based on some of the criteria that we've been outlining tonight at around 8%. Now, in 1991, the number was 30 So it's gone down quite a bit. And sure, I realize statistics, you know, they provide imperfect numbers. But the point is that we have created a cultural landscape in which it is possible for someone to be a Christian and not an apprentice of Jesus. I remember standing in my living room with my two friends watching those ninja training DVDs. And though there was excitement in the air, I can't lie to you guys. I couldn't help but think in my heart of hearts, this isn't really it, is it? Um, (laughs) Like some of you, I grew up in the church. My parents loved Jesus. Some of that experience was really good. A lot of it was not so good. About 21 years ago, I counted last night, I think I realized that I was interested in following Jesus not just because it was something I had been raised to do. So I did. And it's really strange following Jesus like any very long relationship, shifts and changes over time. He doesn't change, but the way that he talks to me has changed and the angles from which I see him have changed and all that kind of thing. At one point in my life, I wanted an accommodating Jesus, like many people, one who would fit into the rhythms and routines and plans that I had designed for myself. In another season, I was absolutely convinced of my foolishness in the previous season, The cost of discipleship, I decided, was very high. Everything must be abandoned for the sake of King Jesus, which is true. But then I wanted to understand Jesus academically and theoretically. I wanted to master theology. I went to graduate school. I read and read. I dazzled my friends with terms like epistemological nescience and Pauline corpus. Really, they probably thought I was a butthead, and I was. Um, In another season, I wanted Jesus boot camp. I wanted an intense regimen of spiritual disciplines, waking up before dawn, pouring over the scriptures, fasting. I memorized entire books of the Bible. I prayed for hours at a time. And then I got tired and sad, frankly. And I let things from my past patterns of emotional unhealthiness and self-hatred catch up with me. And I was bedraggled and worn down. And I felt like a fraud all the time. The old routines wouldn't stand any longer. They kind of wilted over the years. Then I started therapy and new rhythms and new disciplines and learned new ways to talk to God and to hear from God. And now, with some miles behind me, and if I don't die first, presumably miles yet to go, so much to learn, so much growing to do. But I can see that really all of that, they were different seasons of following Jesus. I was following him imperfectly, but following him through it all, and he went with me the entire time. But what I did not know then, and I'm learning now, is that the way of Jesus often seems to us a strange paradox. Because yes, there are spiritual disciplines, there is a high ask, there is a cost to discipleship, 
but also you're slowing down and growing in peace and joy and contentment. And really, it is an unhurried, unanxious way of life. So yes, there is study and fasting and prayer, the hardcore stuff, theology, but there's also the quiet and sitting before God, doing nothing at all but knowing Him and being known by Him. And that can be as formative and as incredible as reading a stack of commentaries or reciting Philippians from memory. The activity of the mind and the stillness of the mind. There's the glorious mountaintop and the valley of the shadow of death. There's becoming more like Jesus, but in doing so, you're somehow becoming more you in the process. The you God designed you to be, unburdened by fear or lust or greed or jealousy or comparison or misery, free. And we've been doing this thing, Van City, for more than three years now, which is weird, isn't it? And already I've seen this cycle announce itself when excitement simmers and fades and when spiritual energy becomes spiritual exhaustion and when discipline slips and laziness reigns and when the narrow road of discipleship seems somehow longer than you thought it would be and your legs are as tired as they've ever been and your attention starts to wander But following Jesus, I'm learning, is not about sustaining incredible heights of spiritual infatuation. And though you do grow in mastery of apprenticeship, even the spiritual disciplines are not an end unto themselves, but a means to an end. And the end is God. To become the type of person who can sit comfortably in the awareness that you are God's son, you are God's daughter, and you are beloved. What would you have me do, King Jesus? Yes, I can do that. Like Isaiah before Yahweh, here am I, send me. Following Jesus is not about adding more things to your already overflowing life. It's about changing the life that you have. And amazingly, this is an invitation that's open to everyone. Think of Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple Remember, a discipleship in the first century was ordinarily something reserved for only the best of the very best that had proven it over years and years through the Jewish education system. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, he goes around pointing to people who had clearly already failed out of the program. You guys fishing, you've gone into family business, so you didn't make it in school. Come be my disciple. Imagine like a a famous professor going around in public saying, whoever wants a full-ride scholarship to Harvard, just let me know. No high school diploma necessary, nothing. Just come talk to me and I will get you in. It's absolutely unheard of. So if you hear all this and you imagine, well, good grief, I'm just not the sort of person capable of all it takes to be a disciple, join the club. We call our club (laughs) Vincent. So for the next few weeks... I want to talk about the vision of Van City Church in the coming year, what we're doing and why we're doing the things that we're going to do. And all of it is built on this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. I don't want to stir us into a frenzy. I'm not trying to recharge idling batteries or something like that, but to draw an old invitation up from our worn pockets, which is the invitation of Jesus. Come, follow me. Be my apprentice.
to remind one another why we once said, yes, Lord, and to say it again. So with that in mind, would you guys pray with me as I invite God's Spirit to speak over us and fill us up? Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.